This is a really, really special week, like I said. We've kind of culminated to this point. This is called Holy Week. Today is Palm Sunday. It's traditionally called Palm Sunday. And uh, this leads us into this week that leads us to Easter. So I want to give you like a glimpse of what this week, um, what this week looked like. Um, and, and so we can all get up to speed, okay? So this is Palm Sunday that we're in right now. This is the Sunday where Jesus rides in Jerusalem to like a king's welcome and they're laying down their cloaks in front of him and they're waving palm branches. If you grew up in church, then you remember this clearly that you like colored palm branches and you waved them, you know? And, uh, and you know, they're like basically rolling out the red carpet for Jesus and they're expecting Jesus to do some, some big miracles. What they're expecting Jesus to do is come in and kick out the Romans. They're expecting Jesus to come in and be this military power that's gonna come in and rally a bunch of rebels and send them out throughout the city to raise some havoc. You know, that's what they're expecting Jesus to do. But Jesus doesn't do that. The, expect, the expectations are so, so high when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And, um, and then on Monday, Jesus confronts the, the money changers in the temple. This is this famous moment where Jesus like flips over some tables and he's angry at, you know, this, this corruption that's happening inside the, the temple. And then on Tuesday, Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives. He's, he's getting asked about whether we should pay taxes to, taxes to Caesar or not. And his response to that question is so, so brilliant. I'll let you look that up on your own. Judas is conspiring to betray Jesus on this Tuesday. We're not really told what happens on Wednesday. Things kind of go silent, but then Thursday, it really starts to kick into gear. So this is uh, Jesus with his disciples at the, the, the Passover meal, at the Last Supper. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And so a lot of church traditions have done this thing called Maundy Thursday. It's this th- celebration on a Thursday night where, where people would get together, have a big meal, kind of like a Passover feast, and then they would wash each other's feet. And that word Maundy sort of is a Christian, old Christian word for like washing feet. And so they would sort of like enter into the story of Jesus by participating in what Jesus Jesus did um, with his disciples that night. And then Jesus goes to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. He's betrayed. He's arrested. And that takes us to what's known this next Friday is known as Good Friday. It's the best, worst Friday uh, ever in the history of the world because of what happens. Jesus goes on trial. He's condemned. He's mocked. He's whipped. And he's crucified on a cross. And all hope seems lost until Sunday. And that's next Sunday that we get to celebrate the resurrection. Um, I just walked through with you on that, but I know that a lot of us are visual learners and not necessarily auditory learners. So um, I've got a video to show you. You guys ready? You guys want a video today? Sorry, I I don't have popcorn for you, but let's turn on the video and let's get all caught up to speed on what's happened this week with Jesus. So we're walking through the gospel of Luke and we've reached the end of Jesus's long road trip to Jerusalem. He's arrived. So he rides a donkey down the Mount of Olives towards the city and all these crowds are forming and people are singing, praise the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're laying down their cloaks in front of him. Why all this royal treatment? Okay, so Israel's ancient prophets promised that one day God himself would arrive and rescue his people and rule the world. Other times the prophet spoke about a coming king who would ride into Jerusalem to bring justice and peace. So Jesus is activating all these hopes that he's that king and everyone's ecstatic. Well, not everybody. The religious leaders, they think Jesus is a threat to their power and so they're not happy. But even more striking, Jesus himself is distraught. He's actually weeping as he rides. Yeah, why? Well, Jesus can see what is coming. He knows that he won't be accepted as Israel's king. And he knows that Israel will keep going down a destructive path, neglecting the poor, stirring up rebellion against their Roman oppressors. And he knows that it will lead to death. 
it breaks his heart. And it riles him up. The first thing he does in Jerusalem is march into the temple courts and he drives out the money changers, disrupting the entire sacrificial system. Yeah, he's staging a prophetic protest and he stands in the center of the courtyard shouting out words from Israel's ancient prophets. This is supposed to be a place of worship, but you've made it a den of rebels. A den of rebels? Yeah, he's quoting from the prophet Jeremiah, who stood in this same spot, the center of Israel's religious and political power. And he offered the same critique of Israel's leaders, that they're rebellious and corrupt. And they get the message and start to plan to have him killed. Which is no surprise to Jesus. In fact, he planned that all of this would happen during Passover. This is the Holy Week when Jewish people celebrate their ancient story of how God liberated them from slavery and invited them into a covenant relationship. And so Jesus uses the symbols of Passover to reveal the meaning of his coming death. The broken bread was his broken body, and the wine was his blood that would establish a new covenant relationship between God and Israel. Jesus was going to die for his people and open up a new way forward. After the meal, Jesus takes his disciples to a garden to pray. And he struggles with the very human desire to save his life instead of sacrificing it. But he overcomes this temptation. And it's here where the religious leaders with the temple guards find him and arrest him. Now, Jerusalem was being ruled by the Roman Empire, and so the temple leaders couldn't execute Jesus without permission from their Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate. And so they make up this charge that Jesus is a rebel king stirring up revolution against the Roman emperor. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, you say so. Pilate can see that Jesus is an innocent man and he doesn't deserve death. But the leaders keep insisting that he is dangerous. So they negotiate a compromise. Pilate will release an actual rebel against Rome, a man named Barabbas, instead of Jesus. And so the innocent is handed over in the place of the guilty. Jesus is taken away with two other accused criminals and nailed to a Roman execution device. And people are mocking him. Hey, if you're the messianic king, save yourself and us. But Jesus loved his enemies to the very end, offering hope to one of the criminals dying beside him. And he even prayed for his executors. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then the sky darkened as an innocent man died the death of a rebel. And then Jesus cried out with ancient words from Israel's Psalms, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Jesus died, innocent and alone. A lot can happen in a week. Um, what was awesome on Palm Sunday became awful when Friday came. Um, and you know, there was this huge, huge change that happened. They were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest when Jesus is marching into Jerusalem. The word Hosanna means, God, save us, save us, please. And they're expecting Jesus to come save them. And Jesus does, but he does it in a way that nobody expected. And he does it in a way that we're still talking about 2,000 years later. Um, and it's the, he does it in a way that we believe as followers of Jesus is earth-shattering. It's, it's humbling. It's groundbreaking what Jesus did. Now, Jesus isn't the only person to be, you know, to be crucified by the Romans. So hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people 
um, have been cru- were crucified by the Romans. We know that even just a few years later after Jesus died, the Romans um, sacked Jerusalem and they were crucifying 500 people a day for weeks and weeks and weeks. Now, Jesus is just one of the other people that was crushed by the Roman machine and yet we're still talking about this particular man, this, this nobody who did something incredible. He, he, he died on the cross and why is that such a big deal? Why are we still talking about it today? Well, we're just, I just want to point our hearts and our minds to Good Friday, to this reality of Jesus on the cross. And if you're new to, to church, listen, you're in the right place because if you're maybe skeptical or asking questions, what we're gazing into right here is the heart, is the heart of what we believe as Christians. Take the, the death and the, and the resurrection of Jesus out and, and that just leaves Jesus with some nice sermons and some words and that's, we need something more than that. We need just more than encouraging sermons. We need something to come in and change the very fabric of what our world is like. And Jesus did that. If you're here and you've been church forever and it's like, oh, I've heard 80 sermons on this before, then I just implore you, would you just, would you just humbly just like open your heart and just let this truth, because it's so central, would you just let it get deeper? Just let it get deeper in you this morning because it's so, so key to our understanding of, of Jesus and who he is and what he did. Um, and uh, we truly believe it. Now, um, I know, especially to outsiders, that might sound, what I'm talking about right now, might sound kind of silly. Might sound a little bit silly that we believe that Jesus, he's God and he rose and he died on the cross and it did something tremendous for, for our human predicament. I know that sounds silly. And in fact, um, people have thought it's silly for centuries. Did you know that, uh, that p- graffiti has been around for a really, really long time? And archaeologists are always uncovering like old school graffiti. And uh, this, this piece of graffiti was uncovered in Rome in the year 200. Um, it's just like scribbling on the wall, um, you know, just, uh, just sort of, you know, who knows who it was? We don't even know. But this is a scribbling. You'll see somebody on a cross with, a, with like a donkey's head and somebody right here. And the inscription says this, Alexa Menos worships his God. This is uh, some graffiti that's, uh, that's poking fun at this guy named Alexa Menos, who is so silly to believe that his God would die on the cross for him. What, 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 what a stupid thing for Alexa Menos to do. This is, this is graffiti that's designed to be making fun of this guy um, who believes this. I mean, because, and the point of this is only an ass would believe this. And, he's, and, and this is Alexa Menos. And yet, as we as Christ followers, we stand with Alexa Menos, with him, and we believe that Jesus, he died on the cross. Something happened, um, and, uh, and we're going to gaze into that today. I want, I want to read to you uh, from the book of Mark. All the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have their own eyewitness accounts of what happens on the cross. And I want to read you Mark's, and this is in chapter 15, and it starts in verse 16. I'll read it to you. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. 
Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, and he's speaking in Aramaic. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling to Elijah. So someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. A couple things from this passage that are just so, so important for us to get, so rich. Just some details here. Listen, three things. We could say so many things, but let's just say three. One is I want to talk about the fact of Good Friday, the why of Good Friday, and the hope of Good Friday. The fact, the why, and the hope. Okay, so first, the fact of Good Friday. Um, when you read this account in Mark, here's, here's what you're struck by. You're struck that you're not, that you're not reading myth. You know, you're struck that, that you're reading an, an eyewitness account. And the reason why this story comes to us the way that it does is because, is because it happened. And historians, so many historians agree that the reason why, I mean, we get it like it is, is because, is because the people that were there, I mean, this is what they experienced. I mean, this is why they says, hey, there's this guy walking through named Simon, and he's the father of two guys, Alexander and Rufus. I mean, why would you, like, use names if this was, if this was made up later, if it was made up myth, you know? Um, you know it's just so much about this story just speaks to, like, wow, this, this, like, really happened. I mean, it's using times. It's saying nine in the morning and then three and then, you know, noon, and this is what this happened. Um, this is stated to us this way because that's exactly how it happened. Um, and then there's Jesus' last words, which... You know, if you're making up a story about your founder, you know, your like leader's last words, and if you're, if, tr if it's true, perhaps that people made this story up, you know, um, you wouldn't say that Jesus's last dying words were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You would not put that. That just makes Jesus look weak, you know, and the, and the, the translators say, use the words that he cried out, um, but really the, those words mean he shrieked. He screamed. And I think the, the translators just have a real tough time going all the way and just saying it how it is. That Jesus shrieked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, if you're making this up, you make your religious leader's last words be like super inspiring, right? 
I mean, you make Jesus' last words from the cross be like, you know, just like really eloquent. You know, like so many other religious leaders when they've died, you know, or, you know, they, they've got these, these like pithy wisdom statements, you know, and they've got these cookie, you know, these uh, fortune cookie sort of like sayings on their deathbed and it's supposed to make everybody, you know, cheer. And, but Jesus, he says the most unexpected thing. You know, you'd expect Jesus to say this. I wonder if you can guess who said this, their last dying words. You cannot win. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Anybody know who said this? No, not Darth Vader. Ben Kenobi. Thank you. Yeah, you got it. It was Obi-Wan Kenobi said that. I mean, you'd expect that Jesus on the cross would be like, oh, man, I'm coming after you after this. You know, you'd just expect him to do it. Or let's talk about, or maybe the, probably the best example, Braveheart, right? Remember that moment? Mel Gibson's on the table, and he's being tortured, and he gets summons up everything, and freedom! And everybody's like, oh, my gosh, yeah, freedom, you know? And they just, like, go, and none of that happens in this story. None of it. Jesus says, my God, oh my God. And why does Mark go to the trouble of telling us that he says it in Aramaic? I mean, he goes to great pains to show us that Jesus is speaking in Aramaic there. Why? I'll tell you why. It's because everyone there at the cross will never forget that moment for the rest of their lives. Because that's what Jesus said. And that's the language that Jesus said it in. And that's why they're telling us about it. The fact of Good Friday is that it happened. It happened. This really happened. Now, okay, you might be able to accept that it happened, but what does it mean? Why? Why is Jesus doing this? Guys, there are an abundance of answers to that question. And, you know, you could, we could get super theological, and which, which is important to do, and, you know, and, and we can pull out some words. But listen, I got I to gotta boil it down in the time that we have. I got two things. Why? Two things. Tell you why. Jesus is experiencing infinite justice and Jesus is demonstrating infinite obedience. He's demonstrating infinite justice and he's and he's and he's he's demonstrating infinite obedience. Um, first, he's experiencing in, or infinite justice. Um, it says in this passage that at noon darkness covered the land. And you know, if you're a student of the Bible and if you read through the Old Testament and New Testament, you'll see that darkness is like this, is this way that gospel and Bible writers use to describe God's judgment over us. That God's judgment is just hanging over us. That what Christians believe is that we have a God that's pure justice. That wrongs have to be made right. That God's gonna come and restore all things and make all things right. That he's a God of justice. Okay. Now, listen, um, I, I know, and that's, you know, that's not popular language in our culture right now, right? It's not popular to talk about God being a God of justice and, you know, a God of wrath and a God of like, you know, making, you know, th th it's just not popular. But, the re but here's what I know about you is I know that you're, you like that God is a God of justice. We all hope to God that there is a God of justice out there because we're always, we're looking around at things in the world and we're hoping that God is going to enact justice. And here's what I know about you and because this is what I know about me is that you carry one of these things around with you everywhere you go. This is your can of justice. All right? And you've got it right here, right now, even right where you sit. You've got it right here. You've got it in your car, for sure. You've got it at your work. Um, you've got it when you watch TV and you watch the news. And this is what we do. We look around at everybody else out there in the world, and we're like, oh, my gosh, they're not going to get away with they need, They need some justice. God, here we go. Here we go. Get them. You know? 
to give him some justice. Like, oh, this is my boss at work. Like, oh, mm, take that justice, you know? And we, do, we watch it and then you keep it in your car with you because you know you do, you know? It's like, oh, you're not going to do that to me, sir, ma'am, you know? And then you watch the TV and you're just ready with this, you know? You're just like, oh my gosh, all the things in the world, God, why don't you just make all things right? If those people would just, I mean, God, if you would just step in and just like create justice, man, things would go well. And so you're spraying at the TV all the time. We are so good with this can of justice. Do you know what we're really, really not good at? I'm not going to do it, all right? I'm just going to show you, all right? Can you see this right here? We hate this. Like, we just are uncomfortable with doing this. We hate it. We're so good at, at, oh, man, all those people. But what about, like, the injustice in me? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't do this. I'm not good at this. And because God loves us, because he cares about it, he, he, this, the, the injustice in you that you carry around, that God cares about that. But the big question is this. If God is going to be a God of justice, which we hope he is, we hope, you know, the promise is that he's going to make all things right, then how in the world is God going to take people like us who deserve justice? See, the scripture tells us that our worldview as Christians is that we don't deserve grace. We can't earn it. That really what we deserve is God's wrath, his justice on us, that we are at the core, deep down inside in our hearts, that we're murderers, that we're liars, we're, we're rebels on the inside. We've got these hearts that want to worship all these other things, and we neglect God and push him away. And so what God is perfect and he's good, and the expectation is that we, that we follow him completely, and yet none of us do. And so what's God supposed to do? How is he supposed to create justice in the world, but not, but not get rid of you at the same time? See, and trust me, guys, I know in our culture, this is not popular to talk about. Because in our culture, you dare not say that anyone around is guilty of anything. Or, you know, the, the language in our culture is you just be you. And you shouldn't feel guilty about anything. And you should just be yourself. And don't let anybody tell you ever that you, aren't, that you are filled with anything else besides rainbows and unicorns and lollipops. You know? Like, no. The, but the scripture comes in and says, oh, gosh. I deserve justice. So what's God going to do? Let me tell you. This is kind of crazy to think, but I mean, if God is really going to create justice for all, he's got to give justice to all. He's got to enact justice over all. If God is going to create justice for all, then that means that we all deserve it. And how's God going to do that without destroying us? This is exactly what Jesus is doing. God is substituting himself for us. So now instead of all of his justice coming on us, which we deserve, now all of God's justice is getting poured on to Jesus on the cross. He's standing in our place. He's carrying it for us. Is it just the physical pain that Jesus is experiencing? Well, it, it, was, it was, Roman crucifixion was, was the worst. Of course, it was the physical pain, but it was more. Oh, yes, it was way more. Do you know what every psychologist knows, and that we've all experienced this too? You know, one of the biggest pains in life is, the biggest hurts, is when you lose love. When you lose love. And the pain gets heightened based off of how well you know the person whose love you're losing. So if your barista, if you come into your coffee shop and your barista says, I never want to see you again, um, you know, it might like, sting a little like for a second but then you know it's 
All right, you know, it's not going to hurt you that much. Not a big pain for you. What if you got a friend, a good friend that says, I never want to see you again? That hurts. What if you have a parent or a child that says, I never want to see you again? <sighs> Gut wrenching. What if you have a spouse that promised to love you faithfully forever and that spouse says, I never want to see you again? Kills you. It's like going through hell. And those are just some finite relationships that we have on earth. But what about this? What about Jesus, who is Jesus for all of eternity? This isn't 20 years or 50 years or, 100 or even 100 years. This is Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit in this like love relationship in the Trinity for eternity. And in this moment, Jesus is getting, he's getting as it were, rejected. That he's losing that love for our sake. We don't have categories or words to describe what that was like. Jesus was carrying a billion hells onto him. He was walking through the fire of a billion hells for us in that moment by losing that. Wow. And is that it? No, it's not even it. It keeps going. Because not only is Jesus paying for the justice that you and I deserve, but also he's stepping into that space where he is also paying for the injustices that you have experienced that weren't even your fault. That you are here today, that there's wounds represented in this room right now that go deep. You've been hurt, you've been wounded, you've been treated unjustly, you've been treated unfairly. And in some cases, it's been absolutely devastating to you. That you had a parent who, or, or somebody in your life that sexually abused you. You had, you had people in your life that verbally abused you. And those wounds you've carried with you and everything in you just cries out for justice. That's actually a good thing. You know what that is? That's God creating you in his image. He's a God of justice. So you're, you cry out for justice. But, but it's like we can't get justice on this earth oftentimes. We can't get the justice that we want. And does God even care? Does he even know what I'm walking through right now? Does he know? Guys, the cross is such a beautiful thing for you. I got, I'm going to read you this story. This is an old story that I came across a couple months ago, but it's from the 70s. And it's a, like a poem, like a short story kind of kind of long. I, I, literally, literally, I just want you to, can you just listen? And if it helps you to listen, to close your eyes, do that. If you need to open them, whatever. Let me read you this story. The picture that this story sets up is that here we are at the end of time, and there's a bunch of people standing before God's throne, and they're waiting for God to sort of walk through what, what, what sort of judgment looks like, and they're angry, and they're frustrated at him for all the different injustices that have happened in the world. Let me read it to you. It says, at the end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly with belligerence. One woman said, how can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Look here, as she rips open a sleeve. See that tattoo? That's the number they branded on my arm when we were herded into the Nazi concentration camp. And that was only the beginning of the tortures, the beatings, the utter terror, and then the death, the agony of death in those gas chambers. And why? Just because we were Jews. And then an African-American was there and he said, what about this? You know what this rope burn is around my neck? It's where they hanged me. 
The mob came to my house screaming abuse. They dragged my family out and beat them, then burnt the house down. Then they dragged me half a mile behind a horse, cutting my skin to shreds, and finally hanged me. And why? Because I was black. There was a Muslim man there, and he said, 50,000 died in my city, my parents and all my brothers. Because I was a Muslim, they wanted an ethnically cleansed country, and God stood by and did nothing. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he had permitted in this world. How could God do this to us? If he's so almighty and powerful, um, if he loves man like he says, why did he not step in? All this evil and suffering in the world and he did nothing. The fat cats get fatter and the poor got ground down. It's all right for him living up in heaven where everything is sweetness and light. There's no crying or fear where he is, no hunger or hatred. Notice he doesn't let any of those things come near him. He keeps them well away where they won't spoil his precious heaven. Each of the groups chose a leader and sent him or her to assemble in front of the throne. And each leader had been chosen because he or she had suffered the most. A Jew from the Holocaust, a victim of the atomic bomb that was dropped at Hiroshima, a villager from the killing fields of Cambodia, a child born with AIDS. Thousands of them representing every grotesque cruelty and illness this world has wreaked on mankind. They met to pool their grievances and at long last they appeared to present their argument to God. Hear us, God, because we have a strong case to put before you. You have brought us, brought us all to this place to judge us, but we say that you have so ins, in, insulated yourself from the realities of life that you are in no position, no position to pass sentence on us. You are, not, you are not qualified to judge us because you do not have the slightest idea of the suffering we have gone through. If you wish to judge us with any fairness, then first you should endure what we have endured. We agree that first, you should be sentenced to live on earth as a human. There were strong murmurs of approval from the crowd. Let that human be born a Jew, to know the meaning of unjust discrimination. And let him be born into a poor family in suspicious circumstances so that the world snickers behind his back about who his real father is. Give him an almost impossible job, a task so difficult that even his family will think he's out of his mind when he tries to do it. A task that turns the authorities of the country against him so that they seek his life and hunt him down. Let him be betrayed by one of his closest friends and brought with false charges before a cowardly judge. And let him be tried by a prejudiced jury, convicted on false evidence, and sentenced to death by the most cruel means of punishment devised by man. But first let him be tortured while all his friends desert him and no one puts out a hand to help him. Let even his father turn his back on him and disown him. Then he will know what, it's, what it is to be truly alone. Only then let him die, publicly stripped, beaten, and in full view of a hostile crowd. A long, slow, agonizing death that spares him none of the pain that men and women have suffered at the hands of tyrants and oppressors throughout countless centuries. May he taste the full depth of it. There was a final cry of approval from the crowd. That is our sentence. Now how do you answer God? If you're following along, I'll put the end of the story on the screen. At last, 
As the last word was spoken, a hush fell over the crowd. Across all this vast multitude, there was not a sound. A silence fell so deep, it seemed as if the entire universe was holding its breath. Suddenly, it was broken by someone weeping. A single person's cry that was picked up and amplified by the still air. No one stirred to comfort her because her cry had become theirs. For at that moment, all realized that God had already served his sentence. That Jesus was on the cross and not only paying for the judgment that you deserve, but also he's identifying. He's identifying with every single one of us, with every single wound and pain and hurt that human beings have experienced. He knows. He knows because he was right in the middle of that hell. No, guys, listen, no other, no other religion is going to give you a God that does that. No other faith system out there is going to give you a God that does that. Guys, your money will not do that for you. Your job will not do that for you. Guys, your spouse will not do that for you. We can't turn anything else into a God because anything else is just going to leave us dry. The only God who's willing to do that, to walk through that hell, is the God that we have. Infinite justice, but it gets better. Not only is he doing that, but he's demonstrating infinite obedience. Oh, guys, this is, this is just a mystery, and I just, it's hard to describe it. But what Jesus also was doing on the cross, the, the other side of the cross besides his justice that was being paid is that his, his pure obedience. Jesus is, is perfect and he obeys perfectly, doesn't he? All throughout his life. And you think that if this was like a good story that Jesus should be getting a blessing from God because that's the story that we're told that if you follow the rules and do good things that God will bless you. But here we have this Jesus who has done everything right and he's being cursed. He's not getting blessed. And Jesus has every right to, to wave his fist and say, God, what about my blessing? What, I mean, I did everything right. But yet we see in these last moments of his life that even in walking through hell, Jesus puts his fist down and just says, Father, I trust you. I love you. My God. My God. You're still my God. He's speaking in covenant language there. He's like, God, you're my God. Jesus, even walking through death, obeys perfectly. And you know what theologians call this? I got to give you 60 seconds of some, some heavy theology. Theologians call this a, a double imputation, and it's beautiful. It means that not only did our sins come, or not, not only did, uh, did our sins go to Christ, and he paid for all the justice that needs to be done, but also all of his righteousness comes to us. This is incredible. Listen, if you follow Jesus, if you surrender your life to him, then you know what happens? Is God treats you as if you obeyed just exactly as Jesus did. You deserve no medal. I deserve no medal. And yet because of what Jesus did, every one of us have a congressional medal of honor strapped to our chests. Guys, that's good news. You, maybe you came in here and you thought, man, you're past it's just too much, that God can't possibly love you because of stuff that happened or stuff that you did or, you know, just God, you, you just struggle with his love for you. But listen, if you're in Christ, this is why 2 Corinthians can say this, is that God made him who had no sin to be sin so that we could become 
the righteousness of God. So that he looks on you and I and he doesn't see our past and he doesn't, he doesn't judge us based on our sin. But if you're in Christ, that means he looks at you and he sees Christ's perfect obedience all over you. Guys, that's crazy. That's insane. I mean, that's wild. That's, it's like too good to be true. And in, and in a lot of ways it is. It's just too good to be true, except it is true. Lastly, the hope. The hope of Good Friday. The hope. Um, why did Jesus do this? Let's just look at this whole cross thing as a whole. Why did Jesus do it? The, the easy answer, the short answer, the, and it's a true answer, is that Jesus did this because he was going to glorify the Father. He's going to glorify God. And that's true, but it doesn't go all the way because Jesus was glorifying God perfectly from, from heaven you know, before he comes to the cross. So he doesn't need to glorify God more than he was already. Jesus is already perfectly glorifying the Father. And so the answer is more than that. Why did Jesus come and die on the cross? And here's the question. What did Jesus need to get that he didn't have before he came? What did Jesus need to get? What did he not have before he came? And the answer is us, our hearts, these hearts that are just so broken and fractured and we just believe all these other things and follow all these other gods. We needed a God to come into the midst of our hell to pay for us, to show us perfect love because God knew that would be the thing. That's the only thing that changes a human heart is encountering grace, grace like that. That will change you. That's what Jesus came to do. He came because he loves you. He came because he loves me. He came because he wants to find us and win us back. And he did that through the cross. Let's continue, as Christians have done for centuries now, to contemplate this, just to let it rest on our hearts this morning. You know, we don't have a Good Friday service this week. Um, we're going to kind of get launched into Easter. But if we were having, I want to leave us this morning with like a Good Friday feeling. Usually Good Friday feelings Leave us in a place of sort of like uncomfortableness. It's, it's kind of heavy, but it's supposed to be. We're supposed to contemplate, wow, this God, the price that you paid. If you ever wonder if God really loves you, all you have to do is look at the cross because that's where he shows you. That's where he shows you ultimately because he was willing to go to hell and back for you.